Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. We spend our life developing a persona, an archetype of who we are, but that's not actually who we are. And then when we become that person, we have to change it yet again. So did I think I would be this person at my age? I don't know. Welcome to Terra Incognita, the adventure podcast. Today's episode is with legendary mountaineer Comrade Anker. Before I continue to introduce Comrade, um, I have to mention that four days ago on the 16th of April, um, an avalanche in the Canadian Rockies uh, killed David Lama, Hans Jorgauer and Jess Ross Kelly. Um, I had spent a little bit of time with Hans Jorg uh, working on a film project a few years ago, um, so it kind of hit me quite hard. But Comrade knew David Lama extremely well. Uh, they climbed together. Comrade was something of a mentor to David. And there's absolutely no question that Comrade has been quite deeply affected um, by what's happened in Canada over the last few days. It was um, definitely still very raw for Comrade when we recorded this interview yesterday. And um, I was amazed and impressed that he still wanted to do it. Um, I was expecting it to be cancelled, but he wanted to continue regardless, which I think is a true testament to his character. For those of you who don't know him, Comrade Anker is an American rock climber, alpinist, mountaineer. He um, shot to fame in the 80s and 90s, making bold, cutting-edge ascents uh, all over the world. And in 1999, uh, Comrade discovered George Mallory's body on Everest, and in the same year, his regular climbing partner, Alex Lowe, who he describes as a brother, was tragically swept away in an avalanche that almost killed Comrade himself. Comrade has done so much, and it's impossible to sum his life up in an introduction to a podcast. We could spend a lot of time sat here simply talking about his achievements. And more recently, I guess, he's known for climbing Meru with Jimmy Chin and Renan Ozturk, which Jimmy and the team turned into a sensational film um, that I definitely recommend you check out if you haven't seen it. These days, he's also championing the environment and uh, leading the charge on the sustainability of our planet and our responsibility to act. Um, I think it's fair to say that visionary and legendary are definitely words you would associate with Comrade Anker. So uh, 20 years on from his discovery of Mallory on Everest and the death of Alex Lowe, uh, we sat down and talked about loss, uh, love, religion and the cosmos. So strap in and enjoy an hour with Comrade Anker. Um, my name's Conrad Anker. My family's from Central California, Southern Tuolumne County, and uh, my father's side of the family's been there since 1853. Um, my mother 
Um, so yeah, they're, I'm fifth generation in that area. And then my mother um, met my father after the Second World War. Um, so she grew up outside of uh, Dresden and um, basically a peasant. Um, it wasn't and met my father in the service and when he, when he was in the service afterwards and then came over here. So that was um, part of who I am and what I grew up with, uh, that um, uh, a mother that was an immigrant and a um, growing up under hardship and um, being at uh, um, not even a teenager when all that stuff went down so um and then a a father that was from rural california so they're both like you have to work hard and a sense of value so maybe that's where i get my hard driven stuff nice and would you mind um just to kind of get rid of the elephant in the room maybe talk a little bit about how you are feeling and the last couple of days yeah the um 16th of april um was um that uh yeah their tragedy bestruck the alpine climbing and climbing community and i was um finishing up a presentation in leeds and driving to manchester and um i got a phone call from uh Jess Ross Kelly's mother and from the time I saw the number come up to when I put it to my ear I knew exactly what it was and that is um just because I've been through this too much and that was um I was just yeah so they're um and the timing of calls that you get from your friends you know what they are and for the Ross Kelly family they're close to our family our kids are the same age and they've um and I've known Jess and his father for 20 plus years so um yeah that was um so yeah sometime on the 16th of uh april 2019 um david lama hans and jess ross kelly were climbing on the uh, northeasterly aspect of howe's peak um in the canadian rockies and they they were swept um, to their death by an avalanche as we record this podcast, the bodies haven't been recovered, but um, it's um, unlikely, but it's still, um, I mean, people are still holding out hope, but um, being a realist and then also in communication with John Ross Kelly, Jess's dad, who's um, a very accomplished alpinist of his generation. He's has been really straightforward with it, but um, yeah, it's... Um, the price we pay for this game we play and we always hope that it never comes around and you try to avoid it but um in this case with um three uh, alpinists um in their 30s that's your strongest decade as a climber david lama was 28 but um to see them taken away and taken from their lives was um quite a um quite a tragic moment on a personal level, um, I'm have been part of the North Face since 1983, and um, helped create and organize and manage the athlete team and 
was the team captain up until a year ago and um, passed the reins on to Hillary Nelson on my own, by my own accord. Um, but um, with uh, Jess and David were two athletes that I had climbed with and had brought into the, under the, into the fold and, and had him be part of it. And so, um, yeah, my connection to the Ross Kelly family, they're from Spokane. I'm from Bozeman. So we're both at that same latitude in Western United States and same sort of um, values. And of course, looking up to John Ross Kelly, um, first uh, person from the United States to climb K2 and uh, the first person to climb Guri Shankar, which is a really challenging peak in the Rawaling area of Nepal and a host of other climbs. So it's really did quite a bit of things. And so, yeah. And then with uh, David, um, yeah, it's uh, four years to this month that we started climbing and started climbing in the desert in Zion. And um, it was kind of a... Um, Peter Hobbler, who I know is an acquaintance and was part of David's uh, origin story and where he was and saw the talent that he had and started mentoring him at a very young age was um, the uh, um, sort of that uh, um, he encouraged us to get together that we'd and we had a great time. And so we did... Um, a um, climbed a, a new route that was a completion of a route that I'd started in the Cyan National Park, which was good fun. And then um, we uh, tried twice on Lunagri um, once in 2015 and got um, stormed off and um, sort of in over our head. It was more difficult than we had anticipated. And then 2016, when we returned on the 16th of November, I suffered a coronary obstruction of my left anterior descending artery. So basically had a heart attack and um, David saved my life in the process of that. And um, he came back in the post monsoon of 2018, eventually summited Lunagri. So it was neat to see that uh, completion with it. But um, yeah, we we celebrate the mountains because they're um, they create this wonderful connection between people that are out there that you have to depend on another person you have to know who they are but at the um, when you um, run into um, up against what just happened you you have to question whether it's really worth it yeah thank you for being so honest and having been exposed to mountains, mountaineering, climbing and the community for 40 years that long, what does it make you think? How, how do you justify the risk these days? I'm 56 today and I'll be 57 shortly. So um, I'm more realistic about loss. When it first hit, when I was 28, um, when my mentor Muggs fell into a crevasse and was buried, um, yeah, it was, my whole world fell apart and it was really tragic. And now when I see people of that age in their 20s and early 30s and up until their 40s, mid 40s even, when they experience that loss for the first time and how ground 
shaking it is to their world and what they look at and, and the tragedy with it. But it's, um, yeah, I've seen far too much of this and, um, it, you know, from my father passed away, but that was, that was to be expected. He was in his late eighties and he'd lived a full life. So that was, everything was fine with that. That was, but when you leave before your time is up or before you've done what you might want to do in life, it's really a, it's a, uh, it's a tough one. It's not particularly fun to even talk about, but you know, at times of tragedy, I guess it's, you know, we can look on them, this life and think, well, why do we do these things and how do we justify it and why bother? But actually, you know, there's so many positives that come out of what we do and why we do it. And I think we, we all need this as part of our lives. I think we need the adventure. I think more people should be exposed to adventure. Of course. I mean, there's no question. I mean, there's 7.4 billion people on this planet. And um, so, yeah, there's no shortage of tragedy, loss and death. And I mean, there'll be, um, and on an individual level, it, um, yeah, it's painful for the families and the loved ones and those that are left behind because for the person that loses their mountains, life in the mountains, um, there's a brief pain. Um, but it, um, for the ones that are left behind, they're picking up the pieces and trying to understand it. And as climbers, we're always, we can rationalize um, loss and death and everything like that. But is it, um, is it the, yeah, they're, um, yeah, they're, individually we can't, it, it really hurts with the families, but we need people out there that seek adventure and challenge themselves. And climbing isn't everyone's cup of tea, but if it is, um, what is your passion, then you need to follow that calling. Yeah, for sure. I think, and we'll come back to this and I definitely would like to talk about the positives surrounding mountaineering and adventure and exploration and why it's important. Unfortunately, just quickly as a precursor, if you could tell me um, about Alex and your relationship with him. Yeah, um, Alex Lowe was um, my steady climbing partner in um, the uh, 90s. And so that was, I was in my 30s that decade. And so we did a bunch of expeditions together and traveled and climbed together and were we were both born with the same factory setting, <laughs> which probably live life fully and uh, challenge yourself and seek out adventure. And that was um, the uh, the key part of it. But um, the, um, yeah, in on the um, 5th of October, 1999, we were on an expedition to... Shishapangla in Tibet and an avalanche came down and took his life and that was um yes I was 36 at the time so yeah the sort of the the wheels came off in my um universe afterwards um being there with uh his family his widow Jennifer and uh, and the three children of their union 
Max, Sam, and Isaac, we uh, found love and we nurtured that love and that love blossomed. We were eventually, um, we got married on the 6th of April, 2001, so 18 years together. And it was um, a wonderful conclusion. And I guess he was um, my most solid main climbing partner. But um, yeah, there, there's not a day that doesn't go by, even here as we're talking about him, that you don't think about that. And that um, rather than seeing that level of loss and that constant remembrance is something that's weighs upon you, turn it into something positive. And at the time that it happened, how, you know, you say the wheels came off. What happened to you, you know, psychologically? What happened to your head? Yeah, um, and I'm not well-versed in the ways of the mind, but, um, yeah, immediately was, um, there was uh, the traumatic event, which is getting hit by an avalanche and getting pummeled and beat up and injured. Um, and then that, the violence of it, um, just the, the movement of the snow, not like in movies and just um, the immensity of it. And then afterwards, uh, dealing with uh, survivor's guilt, coming through that aspect of it and what it how it impacts you. What was returning to the USA like? It was, you know, in, you know from getting out of the mountains and then um, going to the embassy in uh, Kathmandu and the um, issuing a death certificate without a body is, there's quite, it's not, I mean, there's, structure and function to all of this in our society that I didn't know at the time and so having to go through it and then to be uh, cross-examined by people from the embassy and to and the Chinese authorities and everything so that came around and was um, in 2016 Alex and David melted out of the glacier and so that brought closure to it because um, I'd have these dreams that Alex had gone to New Zealand or someplace and was living a life and it had come back and that there wasn't, because there wasn't that finality. And then when we went back to attend to his body and that of David with the families and that there was, uh, you know, it was like, Wow. There's my water bottle in Alex's pack with my handwriting on it, and there, there's his watch. So we knew at that point. But um, yeah, and it was um, David Gutler and Uli Stack were um, the ones that had found them. And in the same way that I began our conversation about getting that call and knowing what it was and the time that the number shows up to when you answered, it was the same thing because I knew that they were there on the south side of uh, the mountain. And, um, and it was, um, yeah, I mean, we knew that they were going to come out of the glacier sooner or later, but it's probably sooner as, a, as an effect of climate change. 
Yeah. And so, how was it returning to Alex's family? Yeah, it was, uh, to be there, it was, I knew the family. I mean, all the way from when Sam was born and when Isaac was born, and there were, we climbed together, we worked together. And so, um, it was, yeah. And, and a lot of it is that wrestling with the bear and, of being a survivor and that's because you don't you're like wow me and when Alex had it going on and he was a family man I was living the life of a climbing bum albeit successful to some degree I was getting my trips paid for but I was basically pursuing my own goals and dreams and as some might see it as a hedonistic pursuit but it was what my calling in life was so I had the good fortune to do that but to see where the children were with loss um, was that and then to find happiness with Jennifer and allowing that love to flourish and then to be there and um, with Jennifer and to have genuine deep love and also to um, to be there with the boys and help them out in the um in the process of uh, of maturing and growing up, and it's blindingly obvious just from what I've heard um, in other interviews and what I've seen online that you know they are your family and they see you as you know their family, and that's a wonderful stage to be at after was it eighteen years? You said, um, well, plus the before the marriage, I guess, so yeah. 20, 20 years. How did they? How did the boys react initially, or were they so young that it? They were, um, in in terms of the union with Jennifer and I, they were very supportive of it. They, they, they were like, "Oh, it'll be like a Disney movie, or you know, a happy ending." Um, and there's, you've seen split families through divorce, and there's more acrimony, and the parents will play off of each other, and it'll have a, a challenge with the children. And and then here it was like Alex was gone, so. Um, and I did the best I could, and fortunately, my parents were solid parents, and they gave me a good uh, foundation to um, for parenting. And so, yeah, we <laughs> lived life well. And and they're, the boys are now Max is thirty, and Sam's twenty six, and Isaac's twenty three. So they're young men, and they've gone from being kids and children that you have to sort of make sure you have guidelines and expectations for to being adults that you want to be friends with and go out and do things with and have a conversation. You're still a parent. And I see that with my mother who's still alive and she's 86. So there's, um, there's still that you'll never change that dynamic, but how you interpret it and how you interact with them is always a continuing process. And it must be really interesting because, you know, my my mum really likes hearing about the trips I've done, but she likes me to tell her afterwards. And, you know, it must be interesting, the dynamic with you guys, because I guess they tell you about the trips beforehand because they want or what they're doing in the mountains. And because Max particularly plays outside a lot, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, it must be, um, you know, does he involve you in the early stages of what he's doing or do you climb together? Yeah, we climb together. We've been on Denali and he made a great film about um, skiing um, in Iraq. So and that was uh, um, the... Uh, yeah, the, about soldiers returning to Iraq. And so that was, going on that trip was, I mean, there was more apprehension, but I've always been, um, I tend not to worry. I don't, it's something that hasn't happened yet. I'm not going to, I'm not going to fill my brain. I mean, the scaffolding on the building out the window, I'm not going to be worried that it falls over. I trust the people that built the scaffolding and it's fine, but there's more, more stuff going on to be occupied with something like that. Is that learned behavior? Part of it is learned behavior. Um, it also might be um, the uh, what your parents bring to you, and and also part of it is is um, what you were born with and where you're at. And children are all different in within siblings, and um, even though they have closely matched genetic but there's always a little bit different and can you tell me there's um i have a vague memory of hearing you talk about um something that happened when you got down from shishapangwa with someone talking about looking after the family of brothers or something like that yeah they're um when um by tibetan background there's always a um um and that you would, that your brother would take care of the widow. And so even though we weren't brothers in a biologic sense, we were certainly brothers. And and the, the Nepali-Tibetan sense, and so there's always, um, in that sense, I was David Lama's uncle because I'm the same age as his father. But even though I'm not... Um, a direct relation to them, there's that that age and where you're at. So someone might be my niece or someone might be my nephew or something like that, or they introduce people with that. And when people are in Nepal the first few times, they're like, you've introduced me to five of your brothers. <laughs> well, yeah, this is how we, so there was that sense. And that was, um, but yeah, it's, it's um, we weren't the first to find happiness in that same way. And it, um, it's a good thing, and why not? I mean, we're here to to be there for each other. Yeah, it makes it makes a lot of sense to me. I think also people are so judgmental of other people's decisions, and I don't understand how anybody could judge for a fraction of a second something they don't understand or have yeah. tried to understand. Yeah, as long as you're not harming other people, and yeah, I mean, it's a dangerous pursuit, but. I'm not going to pass judgment on someone that lets their child play football. I mean, they know what the risks are. I mean, we now know that it, the damage it causes to your brain, but I'm not going to, you've made that choice and that's fine. I'm not going to pass judgment on you and I'm not going to be, and to be mindful of everyone. I mean, that person that's having a hard day, you don't know if they've had a hard day and give them margin, treat them with respect and kindness. And there's, um, <laughs> do you manage not to pass judgment when parents are stopping their children from going outside because they think it's dangerous? Oh, no. If that's a parent's choice and that's that, they'll, um, 
they're they're there. It's there, and it, the world is so diverse, and there's so many different cultures. I mean, and you can't compare Papua New Guinea to Saudi Arabia to England to the United States to Chile to China to Korea. I mean, we have so many different nations and so many different cultural mores that have evolved over time and they've evolved very slowly. And that's why we have um, the diversity that we have and um, as many languages. But now, all of a sudden, the world is instantaneous. I mean, we have handheld computers and there's communication. You can get on a jet and within 17 to 48 hours, you can be anywhere on this planet from Antarctica to the North Pole to, I mean, it's, it's really one small world we're on and that we didn't have that. And that sort of framed how we interacted with nature and, and how we answered those cosmic questions about nature and the foundation of religion. A lot of those things I think are tied into that. Yeah. And I was thinking about this as I was driving down today and listening to a previous interview that you'd done. And I've listened to lots before and you are referred to as a climber, right? That's the label. And we all have our labels. And I was thinking, but yeah, he's a climber. That's what he does once he's got there. And he spends his time in base camp. And then at some point, you know, two weeks into a trip, he picks up his ice axe and he spends four or five days using it. And then he comes down again and puts it back in the bag. You know, to, and it's, it's obvious to me that climbing has shaped your life in a huge way the actual physical act of climbing and the pursuit of summits and the pursuit of harder, bigger, faster, more beautiful lines, etc., or just the next one. But to what extent has travel affected you as a person? Travel's good. Travel is, um, is part of who I am. I, um, as a young child and by in second grade we moved to Tokyo Japan lived there for three years and then lived in Hong Kong for two years and then lived in Germany for three years and my mother was an immigrant to the United States so traveling was sort of in my my blood and my father wanted to get off the hill as he called it living in Big Oak Flat and wanted to get out and see the world so um, but traveling um, in where we are now in that we we embrace multiculturalism and that we want to have a more equitable and fair world, it's a very good start to that. And um, yeah, I'm, I mean, history is, I mean, it's not that far back when, I mean, we were still dealing with colonialism and um, cultural imperialism and religion and slavery and, I mean, that, and how we adjust that, how we address that and how we, bring it through is a really good part of it. But yeah, traveling to me is is wonderful even to be here in St. Albans and to see this community and visit the church on a good Friday and take in their culture and learn from it. And the same thing being in India and going to the Taj Mahal or going to the Ghats where they cremate people or, you know, all of that. that and you can get it from watching documentaries on television and reading about things, but there's part of that is traveling. And then when we travel to 
places like the Himalayas that are a developing country, we interact with the people and we are dependent upon them for sustenance and, and being able to move. And that's a really important part of it. And um, that's, um, we're a way to take the wealth that's accumulated here and bring it over there. So when I go to Nepal and yeah, I'll, um, I'll have a bunch of money and I spend it and hiring porters and purchasing food and then it goes into the um, goes into their system, which is a really good way to go. And when you first started going out to the Himalayas, were you surprised by what you saw? You know, was it a shock to you? The first trip to the Himalaya wasn't a shock as much as sort of an eye-opening thing. And so it was 1988. We went to uh, Kishtwar, um, Himalaya. So that was um, in Jammu Kashmir. So, and that was one of the last years, and it was closed up for another 25, 30 years until it was recently reopened. But um, yeah, it, at first it was like, oh, I'm going to go over there, and it's going to be about me. I'm going to climb a 6,000-meter peak with some rock climbing grade that would impress my friends and climb some fluted ice ridge and stand on the summit with some power pose and holding up my ice axe all valiant and strong. But and you get over there and you're like, wow, there's people that are, that are living in houses that are a far cry from what I grew up in with a lot less than I have. And yet they still have happiness and they still have that enjoyment. And so, yeah, climbing brought me there and it was what it was all about, but the lesson came from interacting with people. And again, that's sort of like you climb with your ice axe for five days while you're on it, when the rest of the time you're traveling and interacting with people. And do you think that when your body will no longer take you to the tops of mountains that you'll still go to these places? Oh, I'll still travel. Yeah, and I don't need to be climbing at that level. I mean, that's been, um, you know, that was what happened in 2016 was a, a wake up, not a wake up call, but just the ringing of the bell more. Um, that, you know, that I needed to um, stop chasing that the 7,000 meter granite peaks I mean that peaks 7,000 meters and below and that kind of climbing the Meru or Lunag or Amadablam or Cholatse I mean those that type of those peaks were all what I loved to do and I'm happy to look at them <laughs> And being able to understand that, but then finding a way to take the energy that I have and put it into something another way, whether it's writing or uh, social activism, um, climate awareness, a lot of things. That hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. We can, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm well fed. I'm probably overfed. Most people in the developed world are, but 
taking that energy you have and doing something that's going to affect future generations. Yeah, and that's something I would definitely like to sort of talk about towards the end of this, if that's okay. I mean, especially in the UK at the minute, we've got maybe even right now and definitely this past week, people on the streets in London protesting in the, you know, hundreds and thousands. Um, but before we do, just to continue down the mountain track a little bit, um, would you mind talking us through what happened in 2016? Yeah, 2016. So, um, yeah, second go at Lunag and I was there with David again and it was uh, an ambitious trip trying to do some of the 6,900 meter peak in 25 days door to door. And so that was um, pretty ambitious along those lines. But um, yeah, the um, set out and it was, we had bad weather going in and then we had the, um, the shock of the selection of Donald Trump, which kind of rocked my world that came out of nowhere. And I mean, that caused stress. Um, and then, yeah, on the um, 16th of November, that was the day we were heading up and just um, there was a, a rupture of plaque and it obstructed um, my left anterior descending and then was able to effect a rescue. And that was um, the, uh, fortunately, and got on the sap phone and was found a helicopter in the area, but, um, and then was dropped off in Lukla and then the helicopter had to go um, drop off a bag of rice in a microwave. And I lost a lot of time in the process of that that I didn't know because I'm not a cardiologist. And so those nine hours from onset to procedure and the procedure was then performed in Kathmandu that afternoon. And luckily there was a, a very able and skilled physician, Dr. Yadev Pata, who is a wonderful man, along with Yadev and David Lama, I mean, those two, and my good friend Jiban, who helped me out with that. Those three really came through with it. But um, yeah, the downside of it is that now, two and a half years later, that um, what had, um, I had, I ended up that nine hours, even though I had a strong heart going into it, I had scarred the um, the muscle of my ventricle. And so, but I'm still breathing. So yeah, you take care of yourself. And yeah, it was quite unexpected. I wasn't a, um, I mean, I wasn't living on bourbon and bacon and not taking care of myself. And, um, but it's not uncommon for people with um, my type of physiology that do that kind of pressure on your heart. Um, and I also think that altitude is, is, has, is harder on your heart than what we give it measure to. And having spent 20 years at altitude, including an ascent of Everest without supplemental oxygen and two previous ascents with minimal amounts of oxygen, that each one of those had... Um, affected it. And the closest pain I felt when that heart attack happened was at the South Pole after descending the, um, from climbing it without oxygen and having an O2 saturation of about 52% on the summit and then coming down. What are the ongoing kind of physical results of that? Oh, I'm... My heart's had to compromise um, because that one section is now dormant. 
Um, and I'd hope that it was going to come out of hibernation and, and rebuild. But um, yeah, in the two and a half years, I still have been climbing and I went to Antarctica. I did a lot of trips. And the um, what we found out is that I'm, I've built muscle up in other areas to compensate for that because I'm like a dog that chases sticks till it just topples over. And I just, I'm like, that'll be like, <laughs> I got a lot of energy and I got to figure out how to do, deal with it. And climbing is what I did. And it's my, my love and my meditation and my work and it defines me and all that. And nothing better than getting out on the end of the rope and sharing that experience with your friends. And then, um, coming back and, um, the, um, yeah, just that knowing that I had scarred it, that the rest of my system had, um, my, the rest of my heart had had built up in ways that to keep that, to keep me chasing the sticks. And so, um, yeah, now, um, yeah, it's a, I have an, an enlarged heart and part of it is dormant. So it's, but... You're still chasing sticks though, right? Yeah, getting out. And I'm I'm just, uh, I think I'm, after what happened just this, this weekend with, uh, or this week with uh, the three young men, all of who were friends of mine and people that I had worked with and brought into and mentored at the North Face that, you know, with their loss, that I need to be around for other people. So, um, and yeah, and then, let that next generation pursue their um, take that ball of energy and run with it <laughs> and how does that manifest itself like what what do you mean be around for other people in that um, you know, one way immediately within our community is um, having people that are um, that uh, to when there's loss like what we have here how to address survivor's guilt and having been through that and knowing that you have someone to talk to um that was um i'm better at it i know um what it is and the depths of it and that you don't think you're worth it and that the other person should be alive and you shouldn't and it's well documented in um in the military and combat because there's more frequently of it and it's more obvious and it's more present, but it's, it's very much in terms of what we go through and that same thing and try to understand that and be there for people. And that, um, that it's always, um, uh, and I think of the people that, that we've lost and that the domino effect on, there on the community. So that's one sense being around for other people. And the other one is that, yeah, I've got some crumb of notoriety in society. So I might as well take that and amplify the voice and, um, and make elected officials be aware of where we're at and sort of hold them accountable and doing the best we can. And that, um, I don't, I have no intention of running for office in the United States. It's just, I'm kind of a, um, a, a, a shy and inherently introverted type guy because that's what we do. And that's what it, our, 
our sport is. And I look at the friends I've had over time and, and where it is, and it's not, um, it's not what, so I don't take criticism while I, I, I can't just brush it off. I try to, I over-process it, so to say. So I wouldn't be good, but I need to hold power accountable. I need to, the, the chaos that's going now and, and the abuse of power in the United States is, it's not what, it's not the nation that I was brought up to believe in. And that, um, yeah, I, I like to think that there's a rudder and where you, where you set that rudder on your child and as your child navigates in life will be that direction. But the rudder, as we now look at it in climate change, if, that, if we can steer that rudder, and there's a big push from the carbon-based lobby to, to change that rudder to short-term benefit, but if we can move it back and we change it a small percentage, that where we'll be in 200 years. And in that sense, it's incredibly important for us in this generation, as we're the first generation to be fully aware and cognizant of what climate change is, and the last generation to have a tremendous effect on it. And what we can do now is uh, really important. And to have um, the legislative bodies that exist in the developed world to push against it and there's um there's there's a we got to push back so in that sense we were talking about the uh the climate um protesters are now in london I mean, yeah it's i don't know if blocking train stations and airports is really where you want to make your point but i think it's um it's with elected officials. I mean, they have power and they can, through policy, they can then have strength. And so those policies then create externalities that change things and they then steer the market. And we can have the, the mantra, oh, the market will solve everything and we'll solve climate change through the market. But that's not the case. And in the United States, if you have a 30% tariff on solar panels and you're subsidizing coal, yeah, that's that's not free market, and it's not doing us in a better way. So we have to get those, uh, yeah, change that. Anyways, I could go for hours on how crazy the system is over in the United States, and it's um, the misappropriation of power, and so... Yeah, even from what you've said, it doesn't sound particularly progressive, the whole solar panels and coal situation. Oh, yeah. We've, I mean, we're, um, yeah, there, <laughs> yeah, there's a whole. <laughs> well, why do you think, because I, I can't remember how many interviews we've done for this podcast so far, but it might be around 20, because it's fairly early days. Why, almost without exception, at some point, do you guys naturally bring it around to the environment? What is it about the outdoor community that feels the need to talk about the environment? Well, we're mountaineers, so we're the ears of the mountains. Pardon the pun, but that's a pretty good dad joke. <laughs> but yeah, in that sense, we go out. And if you look at the, the classic roots in the mountains, that was, for instance, the ogre, which was climbed by... Doug Scott and team and 
the route they climbed just melted out. And it's just a recently exposed fractured granite that's it's not it'd be crazy to climb that. And you look at routes in the Himalayas and Amadablam, that snow level is up a thousand meters from what it was in nineteen sixty three when it was first climbed. And it's up from when I climbed it in nineteen ninety to see where it is now. It's um, there's no snow at Camp Two, and when you look at the mountain and at the ebb of the snow, the driest part. So, in the northern hemisphere, that would be September, August. Um, in the Himalayas, it's probably um, December, January because it, it's dry typically in October, November, December in the Himalayas, and then it's cold and the winds tear, and then. Monsoons come, and that's when the majority of the snow lands in the Himalayas, which is a whole other story in earth sciences and glaciology. But that, but where that snow level is, and where that as it warms up, and how the glaciers are replenished or in that. So when you look at the mountains at their low point of moisture, and then you see how it's melted out. So being present and being outdoors, we are aware of what's going on. We have to, um, we see it. And if you live in some place in um, in, a, in a nice house and a chauffeur driv- drives you to the golf course and the golf course is chemically treated lawn to, and then you drive around electric golf cart and you finish it up and you go sit in an air-conditioned room. I mean, you really haven't experienced nature. But if you go outside and you sleep on the side of a mountain and it freezes and you're just, you can't do anything, then um, you know what nature is. And then if you go out running, as you will in Wales tomorrow, you're going to have to thermoregulate. So you get what temperature is. And it's not just some abstract. It's not what shows up on the weather channel. It's something that you see firsthand. And then because we travel, we get a chance to see these places and see how they've um, changed over time. Looking at, you know, not just the outdoor community, but this is, sounds far too serious for someone like me to be talking about, but like global society as a whole. And when you look at the challenges we face environmentally on the whole, do you, do you react positively? I'm an optimist. Yeah, I and mean, we can engineer ourselves out of the, the challenge that we're in right now, but we have to put the resources into education and into supporting the other ways that we can work with it. But um yeah, it's going to be, you know, the next 200 years as we go from a carbon-based economy to a non-carbon-based economy. And we have a way to feed, clothe, and shelter the increasing population of this planet with the same level of comfort and dignity that we we expect. I mean, there's going to be some real challenges. So, but yeah, it's... Um, yeah, we just we have to we have to think long term. And if you think, you know, coming here to the UK, it's beautiful being able to go over to um, the St Albans Cathedral today and look how here's a cathedral that's been this uh, thousands of years old. And the, you know, going back to Roman times here, and so what what they did now affects future generations. But because we're collectively so much 
smarter and more connected and smarter I, in, in the sense that we have um, predictive programs from computers that we can we can understand what's going to happen with the CO2 and where we're at with it and all those challenges. And just to di- digress really quickly, because I meant to ask you earlier, but we moved on. You said you went to um, the church on Good Friday this yeah. morning. Are you, do you consider yourself religious? I'm an atheist. So what is it that made you go to church on Good Friday? Oh, I every wherever I travel, I go into houses of worship. There's no question. Why is that? I, it's um, the what people, it's their belief system and the architecture, just the the air and the presence and the smell of cathedrals in Europe that are thousands of years old. Um, I Not so much purpose-built modern churches. I mean, they might, they have just a different presence, but I'll, I'll take them in and appreciate the architecture. And it's the same way that we all collectively felt a pang of loss with the fire at Notre Dame. And, um, but the, um, yeah, whether it's, Angkor Wat in Cambodia, which is a temple, or um, the Bodhanath in, in Nepal, or um, Mecca, or I mean, all these places that society and culture has spent thousands of years, there's history steeped in it, and to appreciate it and to understand it. What are the similarities? The similarities, as humankind moved forward with civilization as we evolved as species and communities, we, two things, we had to answer the cosmos and understand it. And we had to create some sort of social contract and religion filled both of those. And that was where the, you would, the 10 commandments is an obvious thing. Um, some of them are very, um, different in, in all the world's religions, but there's always some degree of social contract of how you would treat your fellow humans and also another way on how to answer this, the universe of where we're at. And now where we are with science, we know that it's ever expanding and the news about the black hole in our universe and that the size of the sun, the age of the sun and what the earth is made of. And I mean, we're we're learning more every day. And so we, we've answered the cosmos of it and we know how human body works and what the function of it is. And our social contract, our social mores are still um, responsible for how we interact with humans. Um, the, the patriarchy and the, and the racism, a lot of that is attributable to Judeo-Christian heritage. And I mean, it's a, it's a, the 800 pound bear in the room you don't want to talk about it but it has um you know in all the religions and you look at the amount of strife between religions and how they are so um and that in that sense it's um and it's my mother's a she's outright atheist i mean (laughs) so i guess i'm i was born of that and alex honnold he and i are you know we're we don't mind talking about it and being uh, clear with it. And, but I love the, I love and appreciate the culture and the practice and being there. And so sitting in a monastery in Tibet is, is there's enjoyment to it and understanding it, even though I don't know what they're saying, but listening to the drums and the chanting, 
being in a cathedral and, and listening to mass and and um, and listening to the organ play. Those are all beautiful things. Being in a um, a Native American um, ceremony is all. I mean, all those all have connectivity to me. So, is it true that there are certain parts of the Himalaya where the people believe that the gods dwell in the mountains? Um, certainly. Yeah, they're um, in, interesting. And we're, the, the social contract of and, and the, explaining the cosmos as being the foundation of religion and then all the various, um, whether it's Native American um, uh, understanding of the universe and the, the four directions and the sun and the moon and that connection to nature, um, whether it's the Judeo-Christian that God is us and we, he made us in his image and the Immaculate Conception and Noah's Ark and a lot of these different things or the, um, the Aboriginal beliefs of Australia. I mean, they're all, all of the world's religions have a connection to mountains. So if we look at the um, Greek mythology and the pantheon and the gods and Mount Olympus and, and Zeus up there and um, the um, Judeo-Christian heritage and Moses coming down for the Tibetan Buddhism there um, Mount uh, Everest is Chomolungma which is mother goddess of the snows or mother goddess of the earth and those are all really um there's significance to that. And Mount Fuji, as I just mentioned, was something that was special there. And the um, and for the Hindu religion, the Ganga River was the source of their religion. And then where we climbed in the headwaters of that, Meru is the center of the universe. And in front of Meru is Shivling, the peak that Lord Shiva hung out on and, and welcomed the universe down. And then across the way is Bhagarathi, his wife. And so there's very much a spiritual connection there. And mountains, um, prior to the mid-19th century, that is the 1850s or so, they were, they were fearful. Avalanches roared down, storms would gather, and no one wanted to go there. And from a human evolution footprint on the planet, mountains were the last place to be inhabited. Humans spread to the desert into the high Arctic before they were in the mountains, and they're still difficult to live in, inhospitable. Um, but we see them now through the prism of recreation. It's a little bit different. Yeah, we've essentially just dispelled myths about, I mean, the Lake District, where I lived for seven years in northwest England, people didn't go there because it was full of um, fairies and yeah. witches and goblins. And yeah. actually, there's a, a nice big road that goes to the middle of it now, and the mountains aren't very big. Yeah. <laughs> um, so just to kind of drift towards the end, would you encourage people to become mountaineers now? Oh, yeah. I mean, go out and <laughs> enjoy life. And it's, um, yeah, loss is ever-present, and it just is more painful than this. But anything that is your calling in life is good and I mean, I'm not going to judge someone if they they drink all day and smoke cigarettes at the bar. And walking over here, there was more than a few people. And I'm not going to say, hey, that's not good for your life and you shouldn't be doing that. And it is good for their life if that's what they want to do. It doesn't bother me. As long as you're not harming other people. And I don't think that when you're going out and climbing, you're not harming another person. And there's... Um, 
yeah, when you're when you're gone, then yeah, there that pain could be seen as harm. But um, yeah, and fundamentally, the way that we interact in climbing with other people is a transformation of how society is evolving, and it's a good thing. And if we think about organized team sports, and so you have space time so you create a field you put a time on it then you have a ball and then you add on a layer of rules and all those i mean there's no difference between cricket or baseball or football or rugby um they're just different iterations but they still have time space and rule constraints put on them and then you team up and you are better than the other person and so there's always a victor and there's always a loser the betters like it because it's a they can go on it and it has to happen at a certain time and we're fascinated by as humans, but you're still not, um, it, it is still antagonistic in the manner in which you're interacting with other humans. Whereas you go to the climbing gym, it's supportive. Um, there's a community there. Um, everyone's very open and welcoming. And this transition has changed in the last 30 years with the advent of climbing gyms and that children at a young age they respond to it well. And now that we're seeing the second generation of children that have been exposed to climbing gyms, that that way in which humans interact with each other and that positivity has a good effect on the neural pathway, pathways of a developing mind. So if it's not about competition, and it is about human performance, but not for everybody, or maybe just in part for some people, why, why should people go and climb mountains specifically? Well, a view <laughs> perhaps is one thing, but yeah, they're, um, I mean, for many people and myself included, I mean, there's the ego of it and that, you know, to say that it's not the case is, is not being honest with it. I mean, we are ego driven humans in this way. Climbers want to have the most daring route and the most amazing thing and I mean yeah to be the only person that's climbed El Capitan without a rope is I mean that's a, a prize unto itself and that feeds on the ego and that um, and so there and that's as the person develops but what's amazing in that we spend our life developing a persona an archetype of who we are, but that's not actually who we are. And then when we become that person, we have to change it yet again. So did I think I would be this person at my age? I don't know. Are you proud of the person you are? Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> but, um, there's certain, yeah, I'm not, I'm uh, everyone. We all have our shortcomings and our, our frailties, but I, um, I, truly believe that we can aspire to good things and we can do we can be there for other people and we can help other people along and that we don't need to be um, seething with anger we don't need to be um, selfish and I also this podcast has taught me that we can have more of a positive impact than we even realize because Actually, if you look at the butterfly effect, I mean, you'll have moments in your life where it's very obvious that you've inspired somebody or helped somebody become a better person. But actually, this conversation is particularly interesting for me because of a conversation I had with Leo Holding, because 
if I, I think I've got this right, but you lent Leo his first portal edge and a rack when he came yeah. to Yosemite for the first time because you were away on another trip. Yeah. And then Leo became what he was of what he what he was in Yosemite and went on to do what he does now. So you essentially enabled and inspired Leo Holding. Then I grew up watching Leo Holding movies and decide I'm going to become an adventure filmmaker. And then in t- 2015, I find myself strapped to the side of a mountain, heading to the top of Mirror Wall with Leo Holding. And then I start a podcast, and now I'm sat here with you having this conversation. And previous episodes, I've had people emailing me saying, that episode with Waldo about tree climbing was amazing. I took my children out to climb a tree for the first time yesterday. So I don't even think it's that convoluted. It's, you know, by you lending Leo holding a portal ledge and helping him go climbing, two children went and climbed a tree for the first time yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> and that's kind of a wonderful thing, right? Yeah. And I just think, you know, if, if we can all, despite the loss and despite the tragedy, you know, there's good and there's wonder in climbing mountains. And Yeah, there's no, there, um, it, what we do is we'll help out. Other people have helped me out and, and then I've passed that on. But in, here in touring in the UK, people will come up and, oh, I watched Meru and it just, it has an outsized effect on them. And this one uh, young man came up and it got, his dad started climbing at like 58 after having watched Meru and it was and now he has a better relationship because he's a climber and his dad was there yeah and you can't buy that um so what gives you hope hope is in that um we will treat other humans with the same level of dignity that we expect of ourselves. So that, I mean, again, it comes back to religion. I mean, do unto others as, as you would have them do unto you. And so, I mean, that's, that if we really live that, then we're, we're going to, and regardless of where one is or what one station in life is, that we have that. Um, and with that comes the responsibilities for those that have much that were born into wealth and knowledge and education that they use that to as a lever to help out the people that are disadvantaged and not just talk about it but actually get out there and make change yeah brilliant and what what worries and scares you oh um from a physical standpoint it's uh the changing climate i mean it's going to be i the the increase in CO2 and the increase in temperatures or they'll be fine for my life. If I can squeak out another decade or two, then I'm happy. And But the phase lapse of this temperature spike, it'll be um, more profound. So there's, um, it's sort of the speed in which an ice cube melts. I mean, we can it's slower and then all of a sudden it's fast. And so we're looking at that on a global scale. And what, what are those, um, where is that going to be? And there's no, this, we have this one planet earth. I mean, it'd be, it's folly to think that we can go to Mars. We'd take so many resources off planet earth to go to Mars and to live 
some degree of comfort. <laughs> so that now we're and then people that are um, angry that are um, that have a, a very pointed view on their um, an objective, a self-serving purpose in life. They need to take a step back and be there for other people. Yeah, I think that's fair. And finally then, um, if you had any advice for people who want to live more adventurously or live a bit more like you, then what would it be? Find the park outside your house. There's usually some place where there's trees and nature and start there and seek the rejuvenation that comes from that. And then on your holiday, do something adventurous. I mean, if you want to go sit on the beach, great, but then maybe go look around in the jungle or do some nature while you're there. Just don't count how many drinks you've had. <laughs> so get out there and explore and push yourself. Get scared. When you're at your edge and at your limit, that's when you perform. And that's a key part. Nice. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thanks, Matt. <laughs> Thanks for listening. For more information, check out theadventurepodcast.co.uk. The podcast is produced by Cold House in association with Sidetrack Magazine. It's presented by Matt Pycroft and produced by Pip Saunders and Tom Cargriffin. And as is always the case, please like and share and retweet and tell all your friends that this podcast exists. And um, if you leave us a review on iTunes, that would be amazing. It's really helpful. If you want to get in touch with us, uh, you can email us at info at theadventurepodcast.co.uk.